Okay, well, we're going to be in Acts chapter 20 this morning. And while you're finding your place, I'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we thank you for the day that you've given us, Lord, for the ones who've gathered out here for the uh, the opportunity and the, the freedom that we have to gather together around your word and to study it. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, ask you just help us, Lord, that we don't take it for granted. Lord, we've been uh, talking even before church about different persecutions and things that are arising, and we are we are thankful that uh, we don't have those worries and those fears as we come to church, that we can come and enjoy the fellowship around your word. But Lord, we know that that may not always be the case, and we just pray, as I said, help us not to take that for granted. And Lord, I just pray that you guide and direct us as we get into your word, help us to study it, be encouraged by it, learn from it, Lord. I pray that you guide and direct me as I teach. And Lord, I just pray that you'd be with each person here. They would get exactly what they need. I pray that you'd be with the folks that are still on their way out this morning, that you'd watch over them, be with those who are unable to be here due to, to work or other obligations, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us as a church to be a light and a witness in this place that you've put us. I just pray that we can uh, have opportunities to talk to folks about you, to share the gospel, and help us, Lord, to, to keep our lives in such a way, Lord, that they reflect you. We thank you so much for all that you do, Lord. We thank you for all you want to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so Acts chapter number 20 is where we're at. And last week we were looking at uh, the city of Ephesus and Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And we spent a couple weeks in Ephesus, actually. Uh, altogether, Paul was in uh, the city of Ephesus for over two years. Ephesus was in the region that's called Asia, which isn't what we think of Asia being today. Uh, it would have been in the in the Near East instead of the Far East. And uh, just in the region around the Mediterranean before you come over to Greece. Uh, so if you uh, come up and around from Israel, up and around, and then back down into Greece, it's in this uh, region above, okay? That's where that's where we, we are at there in Asia. Uh, anyway. So to Troas, would it be like Turkey area? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I have a map in the back that I've started to take out two or three times that I never have, but... Anyway, so you've got this area still in Asia. It was before you cross over into uh, what's known as Europe, okay? Is it all about that part? No, I moved it. It's okay. But anyway, uh, it is right kind of the last stop before you come over into Europe is where it would be, and uh, the last stop before you come over into Greece. And anyway, Ephesus is that uh, region where... Uh, all roads, travel routes, and all those things, um, all those things cross through Ephesus. And so with that, as things are coming from the, the west into the east, the east into the west, going through Ephesus, they have uh, the commerce, but they also have all the paganism, the idolatry, uh, the vice and sinfulness, and all those things there. And Paul spent two years ministering there in Ephesus. And through that time, he was able, uh, he was able to... Uh, share the gospel with those people. He was able to see many, many, many people saved. He was able to see them discipled and see them growing and see their lives transforming as he's there ministering to them. And through all of that, uh, we see that uh, the, the word of God had power. It was cleansing them. It was purifying them. It was growing them. We saw that they had victory because the word of God was going out. They were walking in the Word of God. 
We saw they were separating from the false teachers. There was those who came and tried to profit off of the name of Christ and off the name of Paul, tried to use Christianity for their benefit, and they were reproved. They were sent away. Uh, the people were getting rid of the, the wicked influences in their life, and they were drawing close to God. And great things were happening in Ephesus. And as a result, they were having a huge impact on that sinful city. And so idolatry was uh, taking a hit. Paganism was taking a hit. The temple of Diana was becoming less profitable, less people were participating. And so the lost saw Christianity as a threat, not because they were militant, not because they were up in arms, not because they were attacking or that they were somehow uh, being forceful or offensive, but just simply because they were living clean and separated and godly lives, and it was, uh, it was growing. It was taking hold in the area. And so what we talked about last week is the power of a life that's built upon God's Word and separated from wicked influences and the effect that it has on the community and how I believe much of religion gets it wrong today trying to fix uh, all of the social ills of society, trying to go and tackle uh, injustice and poverty and all these other things in society, uh, which are symptoms instead of actually the real issue. And the real issue is sinfulness and man's separation from God. And so our job as a church, our duty as Christians, is not to go out and try to fix all of society's ills, but instead, our job as a church and our job as Christians is to proclaim the Word of God and to live righteously in a lost and dying world. Right. And it's going to have far greater success, far better results than any kind of campaign or protest or anything else is going to have. And if we lose sight of the fact of how important the gospel is, how central the Word of God is to our lives— then we are going to lose our effectiveness as Christians. And I think that's where uh, we are uh, having trouble as Christians today in this world. We see uh, sinfulness and ungodliness increasing. We see the, the church in decline, all these kind of things going on. And I believe it's because we have lost our first love. We have lost uh, sight of what is truly important. Okay, And so we're not starting up programs. We're not trying to get things uh, to try to overcome these social injustices and whatnot. We are preaching the gospel. We are walking in God's word. We are living our lives according to his principles. And doing that will have an impact on the community. Okay? And if you say, well, that doesn't work, if you look at Ephesus, it couldn't have been any, uh, any easier, any better in Ephesus than what it is here. Okay? Because they were far more going, far more wicked, I believe, even than what Ireland is. And so in Ephesus, just the effect of the gospel and people living godly and righteous lives spread like wildfire through the place and had such a massive effect that people were offended and people were threatened by it. Not because the Christians were offensive or threatening. Okay, I want to keep re, uh, reiterating that as we're looking at this. And so in all of these things, the 
lost came against them. They rioted. They made accusations. They said they're trying to ruin our culture, our customs. They're trying to tear down our religion. And the Christians were just there living for Christ. That's what they were doing. And so uh, whenever it comes down to verse number 37 of chapter 19, it says, You have brought hither these men which are neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your gods. Says they haven't came, they haven't attacked you, they haven't sinned, they haven't been wicked, they have been just serving their God, and you find that offensive. And we can relate that to the world we live in. Just serving God today is offensive to the world. They're going to call you bigots, they're going to call you hateful, they're going to call you all kinds of things. And my challenge to all of us last week is make sure their accusations are false. Right? Whenever they come against you and accuse you of all kinds of sin and wickedness, Make sure their accusations are false. I'm just living for God. I'm just living by the dictates of his word and the leading of his Holy Spirit and subject to my conscience, living for God, right? And that'll get you into enough trouble yeah. without having to go look for it. So anyway, what we're going to be looking at today in chapter number 20 is that Paul, after the riot in Ephesus, his his job there is done, Okay. He is no longer going to be able to minister or be effective there. He is going to be a constant source of turmoil and strife if he stays behind. And so it is necessary for Paul to move on. Not only that, but Paul has been desiring to move on for a while. Back in chapter number uh, 19, uh, verse 21, it says, After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he stayed in, he himself stayed in Asia for a season. So back in chapter 19, he was still in Ephesus, but he was making preparations to go forward. And the riot that happened in Ephesus was just the final the final straw, if you will. It was the, the last thing that made it necessary for him to, to pick up and go on. Okay? And so that's where we're at when we come to chapter 20. And we're going to see a lot of movement going on. Uh, but I want to get into something here just in the first little bit of it. So chapter 20, verse number 1, it says, And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece, and there abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him, as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia, uh, Sopater of Berea, and of, and of the Thessalon, uh, Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. Uh, these going before tarried for us at Troas. And as I read that passage, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot to it, but there actually is. And I apologize ahead of time. This this first part might be a little academic, okay? And I want us to get a little idea about what's going on here because it helps to tie the scriptures together. Something that we often don't realize is how much the Bible is connected. A lot of times we look at it as 66 individual books, right? And we don't realize that they overlap and they interconnect. And if we can uh, tie these together, if we can see how they're connected, it gives us a more full picture 
of what the Bible is telling us, the story that it's telling us, okay? Uh, for an example, in the Old Testament, you start out with the historical books, and you go all the way through uh, from Genesis up to, uh, what would it be, Nehemiah. You have the historical books, and it's telling about creation. It's telling about God uh, choosing out Abraham, about God bringing up Abraham's family, about them being incubated down in Egypt and becoming a great nation coming out of Egypt, right? <coughs> God sustaining them in the wilderness and giving them victory into the promised land, then partially defeating the promised land, and then them pulling away from God, right? And then as they pull away from God, God brings judges and he's uh, back and forth and uh, the people are being pointed toward God and they're they're almost like a ping pong ball. They do better, they do worse. They do better, they do worse. They do better, they do worse. And that happens all the way throughout the kings as well. And the good king, bad king, good king, right? And you have that going on throughout the history. Then they're carried away into captivity and then they come out of captivity and they rebuild the the temple and they rebuild the city walls, Ezra and Nehemiah. And there's the, the historical books, but then you have the prophetical books. And if you're just reading through, it's like, okay, well, where, where did these fit in? Well, the prophets were ministering during the time of the kings and they were going and warning the people, trying to turn them back to God, telling them if you don't turn back to God, then this is going to happen. And so you take all the prophetical books and they overlap the historical books as God is dealing with those people and trying to uh, guide their history. Okay, And then you also take the poetical books, you take the Psalms and the Proverbs and things, and that is their worship and that is uh, their wisdom and things as uh, they are learning about God and they are singing about God, they are praising God and things. And so that all interdisperses in that. Okay, That's the Old Testament. You say, well, what does that have to do with Acts? Well, Acts is the history of the church. And after uh, you get through the book of Acts, you have what? What follows Acts? you got Romans, but what are the books that follow Acts? They're epistles, right? They're letters. And many of these letters are written during the time of the book of Acts. Okay? And that's why I'm bringing this out. These letters are written during the time of Acts. And as we um, explore Paul's writings and his letters, it gives us an idea of what was going on during his travels that we've been looking at. Okay? Is everybody still with me? Or have I lost you a few minutes ago? Okay, so anyway, if we will just study this out for a minute and figure out some of the context of this, it's going to make some of the epistles make more sense. Okay? And hopefully that's a good thing for you guys. And that's what I want to do. I want to connect the Bible together. I want it to come alive. I want it to make sense. I want you to be able to read through it and say, okay, this is what was going on in Paul's life. This is where he was at. This is the context for this book. This is why he was writing it. Okay? because that helps us to understand it. And so anyway, as I said, he's been in Ephesus for two years, and during that two years' time, uh, he had left Corinth, he went to uh, Jerusalem, he's come back to Ephesus, and during that time, uh, the church that was at Corinth was growing, it was having some growing pains, they were learning, they were having issues, they were having problems, and those came back to Paul. Uh, part of it was they had questions, they had concerns. And while Paul was at Ephesus, he was dealing with the troubles that was going on in Corinth. 
So he was in Asia writing letters to Europe. Everybody with me still? And so he writes 1 Corinthians because there is sin in the church. There is greed amongst spiritual gifts. There is, you know, the, the man who is uh, sleeping with his stepmother and all these things that are going on. And so Paul is writing to the church at Corinth to deal with these things. And he sends Timothy over into Corinth to help deal with these things. And Timothy delivers the letter. If you look in the verse I read there a minute ago in Acts chapter 19, verse number 22, he sent, uh, so he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus. Okay? And this is whenever Timothy is going over into Macedonia and down into Greece and delivering the letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, there... There was another letter, I believe, that's not uh, contained within our scripture, but it's referred to in 2 Corinthians. So it seems like 2 Corinthians actually would have been 3 Corinthians. Okay, There was another letter. The first one wasn't well received, and finally they, they listened to him, and then they resolved everything and took multiple steps. Okay, So while Paul was in Ephesus, he was writing letters to Corinth to straighten out things there. Okay? And so after he leaves Ephesus, let me get on track here. Okay, so he'd written to the Corinthians from Ephesus, clearing up the problems, giving instruction, and also he was giving instruction about the offering that was to be taken, okay? One thing that he was doing on his third missionary journey, he had been back to Jerusalem after his second one. He had seen that the, the believers in Jerusalem were in poverty. Okay, And so as he was going back through the Gentile churches, he was taking up and offering a collection to send back to the Jewish church so that it would help them with the poverty, with the things that they were going through. Just a question for you all to think for just a minute. Why would the Jewish church be in poverty? Why would there be suffering that needed to be relieved? Mm, well, the Romans have been there. Paul was partially responsible because of the persecution. Yeah, the church in Jerusalem. And so Paul would have been partially responsible originally because he persecuted the church and wasted it, he said. Right? And so the Jerusalem, or, yeah, the Jerusalem church was persecuted by the Jews. Whenever someone became a Christian, the Jews would alienate them. They would ostracize them. You couldn't get employment, you couldn't own land, you couldn't do all these things. Your family would pull out all ties from you, and they would abandon you. So a lot of the people were impoverished because of the persecution. But I think part of it also was that after the, the church was first born and formed, they started having this thing, uh, kind of a, some people refer to it as the Jerusalem experiment. They tried to uh, have their own little compound, their own little commune or whatever. They put all their money together. They had all things common. They tried to, to have like this uh, utopian society, and it didn't work. God never commanded them to do that. They were doing it out of generosity. It was, I guess, a good idea, but it didn't last. And so through the persecution, through some unwise decisions and things, the people in Jerusalem were impoverished, and Paul felt at least partially responsible for it. And then on top of that, he figured that 
as hostile as the Jewish believers were toward the Gentiles, maybe if he brought a love offering from the Gentile churches and brought it back to Jerusalem, it would help soften their hearts toward the Gentile believers. So there's all these things going on in Paul's mind. And so as he is going through, he is spreading the news about this desire that he has to take up an offering, to take up a collection, and send back to the Jerusalem church. We find in the end of Acts chapter, um, or not Acts, 1 Corinthians chapter number 16, I think it is, he is giving instructions to them about laying aside the offering on the first day of the week, leaving until he comes. He's going to collect it and take it to Jerusalem. Okay? And then after he leaves Ephesus, he's going through the region of Macedonia. That would be northern Greece. That would be through uh, Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica and the regions around there. And as he's going through there, he's taking up this collection. He's taking up this offering. And whenever he comes into Philippi, that is where he writes 2 Corinthians. Okay, so 1 Corinthians is from Ephesus, 2 Corinthians probably from Philippi or the regions that's called Macedonia, northern Greece. Okay. Another thing is like in the book of Hebrews, mm-hmm. you get the idea that, um, how can I say, that the, the, the Jews back in the day, you know, the new believers and stuff, they, they still had all those Jewish traditions. Mm-hmm. So they would go on, on a Saturday to the synagogue and then... On a Sunday, worship mm-hmm. as a church. Mm-hmm. You know, they were struggling with that. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, but I, I think Paul Paul was in charge of writing Hebrews. You know? Right, right. I'm just saying that. Yeah, they were pulled between their culture and Christ. Exactly. And that's where he writes Hebrews and is trying to convince them that Christ is better. Yeah. Yeah. And so he has a great burden for the Jews. No doubt he has, he, he said he would himself were accursed for his brother and the Jews. And so repeatedly, Paul is making efforts to try to have an impact on the Jews. And I think one of the, the things that maybe bothered him was how successful he was with the Gentiles and how he could make no headway at all with the Jews yeah. whenever he wanted to win his own people. Okay. And we know how it is to have a love for our own people. Okay, and this isn't a racial thing. It isn't a prejudice thing. It's just there is a national pride. Even you guys were talking about um, about football or rugby or something before church started, and you're you're still cheering for the home teams, even though you haven't been there in a long time, right? Uh, rugby, we're talking about oval ball, you know. Okay, well, I couldn't remember if it was football or rugby, but see, in America, the ball still uh, football still uh, oval. But anyway. So anyway, there is still a burden and a love for the home country, even when you're away. And that's what Paul had. And he wanted to see them get saved. And so he was doing all these things. And so anyway, uh, in Acts 19 and 22, I read a minute ago, he went through Macedonia, uh, sent through Macedonia them that ministered unto him, Timothy and Erastus. They are taking word ahead of time saying, Paul is coming get these offerings ready, get these things ready, and Paul's going to come, collect them, and take them to Jerusalem. Now, as a side note, and all of these offerings, anytime that we talk about money, uh, Paul is not demanding, he is not forcing, he is not saying, okay, this is required of you. 
He's saying this is what the need is, and for whoever will give cheerfully, whoever is of a willing heart, give to this. Okay? But he's giving opportunity, and they are responding in generosity. And he even says that the people of Macedonia uh, went above and beyond his, all of his expectations in their giving. But anyway, um, we also find that in, let's see, 1 Corinthians, trying to get all my thoughts together. They kind of bounce around my head like a bouncy ball, if you can imagine that. Okay. Once again, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. So, once again, he is sending Timothy from Ephesus with the letter of the Corinthians, going through Macedonia, saying Paul's coming, uh, get things ready, coming down, straightening out things in Corinth. Okay, And Paul is spending time there in Ephesus, wondering if his letter is effective, uh, wondering what all has happened since he has been going out of the region because it had been several years since he was there. He's wondering if the people have departed from the faith. He's wondering if they still are willing to receive him because there were arguments against him. There were uh, the ones that were saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Peter and all these different things going on, right? And so Paul has all these questions. He's sending them ahead to kind of figure out what's going on. And then we come to this passage that I just read in chapter 20 where it says that he departed to go to Macedonia and when he had gone over these parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece, okay? So it's only one verse there, but that is about a year of Paul's time, okay? As he's going over all the parts of Macedonia, that's northern Greece, that would be, uh, that would be Armenia we were talking about before church, right? That would have been that region just above Greece or in the upper part of Greece, and he went through all that area, preaching and teaching. He was discipling. He was confirming the churches. He was evangelizing. He was starting new churches. And Acts records one verse for an entire year's worth of ministry. That lets us know a little bit about how much of the story we don't know. Okay, And during that time, during his uh, ministry in Macedonia in northern Greece, he hears back from... Timothy, he gets word from them that things have went well, they've accepted the letter, that the man that was disciplined has gotten things right, that they are uh, back on track, they have some more questions for him to answer and everything. And so Paul is refreshed, he is glad because these things were accepted to hear that Corinth was on track, that they were doing well, and so he sends the book of 2 Corinthians, and once again he's letting them know that he is on his way, Okay. And something interesting that Acts doesn't paint the full picture of, if we're just going through uh, Acts chapter 19, for instance, he's in Ephesus for a while, but uh, it seems like things are going really well in Ephesus, other than the riot. He got through the synagogue after he was there for a few months. They began ministering. The church was growing People were getting saved. They were getting discipled. The, they were having an effect. They were turning Ephesus upside down with the gospel. And then it built to the place where at the very end, there was the riot and he left. Isn't that what it seems like? 
Okay, are you with me? Okay. But if we go over to 2 Corinthians, realizing it was written during this time that he's in Macedonia, right after he leaves Ephesus, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 8, he says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia. That was Ephesus that we were pressed out of measure above strength insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Oh, that's a bit heavy, isn't it? And so Paul is saying in this, account that Luke has recorded in Acts of things going well in Ephesus, he's not necessarily recording the troubles, he is recording the triumphs, he's recording the growth and the, the prospering of the church, right? But Act or excuse me, but Corinthians lets us know that the birth of the church in Ephesus did not come without much labor. Okay? Much travail. And so Paul says, we were pressed out of measure. We despaired even of life. We were at the place we thought we were going to die, and we were ready for it to happen. That's the way that Paul was in Ephesus. And so now he has left Ephesus after the riot and everything. He is uh, weary, no doubt. He is worn because of everything that's went on. And on top of all that, the troubles of the church, the letters that he's writing, the, the burden of pastoring all of these people in different places, and he comes into Philippi, he receives the word from Corinth, he is refreshed, he is helped, he is encouraged, right? And so this is the, the behind the scenes, if you will, of what was going on there. And so 2 Corinthians was written in that period in Acts 20, verse 2. Uh, we can further see that if we turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. It says, For when we were come into Macedonia, that's over in Ephesus, our flesh had no rest, but we... 2 Corinthians 7 and 5. For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side, without were fightings, within were fears, Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you, when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent uh, mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. For though I be, for though I made you sorry with okay, so there's where he's talking about the letter. So what he is talking about here is that as he was coming into Macedonia, that they had these troubles, these trials, these fears. All of this was going on in Paul's life. And then whenever Titus came, bringing word from the things that was going on in Corinth, Timothy still being there. I think I said Timothy a minute ago. Titus came and gave him a good report. Then he was refreshed by it. Okay. So you see how this is going on, how Paul is ministering, how the letters are going about, how people are uh, learning these things and... Uh, the struggles, the troubles, the trials, the growth, all kinds of stuff going on. And if you're just casually reading through, you don't pick up on this. And I'm hoping I'm, I'm doing a, at least an all right, uh, an all right uh, job of getting this across. 
so Acts chapter 20. So he discipled the, the believers. He evangelized the areas. He collected the offering for the impoverished believers that were in Jerusalem. Uh, we see that. I'm not going to turn there for time, but uh, we see that in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where he's telling them we're taking up this collection. The churches in Macedonia have already been giving to it as Paul's there in Macedonia. And all of this collection that they're taking up is part of the reason for this great company in verse number four. They're accompanied him into Asia, those names that I don't want to pronounce again. Okay? So they're accompanied him, all of these men from each of these cities, each of these places that uh, Paul had been to. And the reason for this is they are going with Paul to Jerusalem to accompany their offering. Paul is doing this partially to have accountability. He knows that it's not wise for him by himself to take on all these financial uh, gifts and carry them by himself. For one, you need number for safety, but you also need number for accountability. So there's people that can, uh, there's people who can uh, testify to the fact that Paul was using all of this for the the means that he said that he was. That he was taking and he was using the, he was there was no misappropriation of funds, put it that way. And so he has this whole group with him that is traveling with him. Then in verse number three, Acts 20 verse three, and there abode three months. This is whenever he finally came down to Greece. This is whenever he made it to Corinth. He stayed in Corinth for three months. This would have been during the winter months. He's checking up on the Corinthians. He's ministering to them. He's discipling them. And he abode three months. And then whenever he got ready to leave, it says, and when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And what's going on in this passage is he is now in Greece. He is in Europe. And he is getting ready to sail directly from Greece across to Syria, which is just above Jerusalem, just above Israel. Okay, there was a direct route around the time of the Jewish feasts and the holidays where Jews that were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire could sail from wherever they're at, from Greece, from Rome, from wherever, and sail back to Jerusalem. Paul wanted to be back in Jerusalem. He wanted to take this offering on a direct route. He wanted to be there at the time of uh, the feasts and whatnot. And so he was going to get on this boat. He was going to travel over there. But he was going to be there with a bunch of Jews who were not Christians who hated him. And word got out that on that journey, they had intended to kill him. He would have been a sitting duck, as they say. And so word gets to Paul, and he says, if you, basically, if you go on this boat, if you go along with this group of people, they are going to take the opportunity, they're going to kill you. And Paul <laughs> says, well, I won't go on the boat then. And so instead, he goes up back through Macedonia, through Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi, up through that way, he takes a different route, uh, takes a boat across to Ephesus, basically retracing the steps that he had just come. Okay, And that gives him another opportunity to minister to the people there, another time to see the leaders of the Ephesians church. We'll see you later on in chapter 20, which we won't get to today. Okay, And it'll be more interesting things rather than just, like I said, the academic, the history, seeing all of the movement here. So he wrote 1 Corinthians and a couple other letters, 
from Ephesus. He wrote 2 Corinthians whenever he was reassured uh, about what was going on from uh, Philippi or the regions of Macedonia. He came down and was at Corinth for those three months. And as he was there, his heart and his desire was to go further west. He wanted to go to Rome. We saw that back in uh, chapter 19, verse 21. After I've been there, I must also see Rome. Okay. Even whenever God first saved him, he says, you are a, you're going to be a minister to me, to the Gentiles, and you will go and be before kings and princes and all these things, right? And so there, from the very beginning, he was told, you're going to eventually stand before Caesar. Okay. And so he has this desire to go to Rome, to the seat of the Roman Empire, to one of the most influential uh, places, cities, countries of that time. He wanted to go there and to minister. And so while he was at Corinth, he knew that he was just one step away. If you look at a map, you have Greece, and then you come around to Italy, and you have Rome. And so he's just looking across. There's boats sailing out of Corinth, going to Rome. His desire is to go to Rome, but he first needs to go back to Jerusalem. So while he is at uh, while he is at Corinth, is everybody still with me? Okay, I know we're jumping around quite a bit. I just want to make sure. Okay, so while he is at Corinth, there is a lady by the name of Phoebe. Ever heard of her? P-H-E-B-E, I believe. Uh, you might pronounce it differently. If you do, that's fine. But anyway, there was a lady by the name of Phoebe who was leaving Corinth, and she was traveling to Rome. And Paul says, okay, if she's going to Rome, I'm going to send a letter with her to Rome to prepare the way to minister to the people, to disciple them at a distance, right? And he writes the book of Romans, the epistle to the Romans. And Phoebe hand-delivers it to them. And so his letter is going west while he is going east. And so we've already covered several of the books of the Bible there and where they were written right from that period of time and what Paul is going through. So Paul says, my desire is to come to Rome. He says, I will come to Rome. If we look at Romans chapter 15. I'm trying to connect some dots for you. This might not be one of the more interesting lessons, but I think it's, I think it's necessary. Romans 15, verse 22. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. So this is his desire. He wants to come to him. But now, having no more place in these parts, and having great desire these many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey, and that and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I be somewhat filled with your company. But now I go to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make certain uh, make certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. Okay? So that lets you know where he's at. He's getting ready to come to Rome. He says, I'm finished in these parts. I've ministered in Greece. I've ministered in uh, Asia. And I'm done here. I'm ready to go to Italy. I'm ready to go to Spain. But first, I have to take this offering that I've collected in Asia and Greece and take it back to Jerusalem. So the letter is going westward as he's going eastward. And his goal, his plan, is after he goes to Jerusalem to go to Rome. Now, spoiler alert, it doesn't go the way he wants it to. He goes to Jerusalem. He is arrested. He spends a couple years in prison, right? 
And finally, he is sent forth from Jerusalem. He's sent forth to Rome, so he spends more time in prison. And he finally makes it to Rome, just not by the route that he had expected. And so it's a good thing he sent the letter to the Romans ahead of time, right? And so anyway, um, let's see. So he travels back through Macedonia, through northern Greece. The rest of his entourage takes a more direct route, and they go straight to Troas, and they wait on him. They're taking the money. They're taking the offerings. They're going ahead as he's traveling all throughout, okay? And so that's part of the reason why these people are going in different different places and meeting up and things like that is because for safety and especially for this responsibility of taking care of this offering. Um, so anyway, that gets us down to where we're at here in verse 5. These going before tarried for us at Troas. They went ahead, he picked up some more, and they came into Troas. We're going to finish here with uh, Paul in Troas. Verse number 6, it says, uh, And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them unto Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. So he's giving a couple date markers here. Okay? Uh, for one thing, he says it's after the days of unleavened bread. That would be the Passover. He's wanting in, wanting to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost, which is how long after Passover? 50 days, Pent, right? 50 days after Passover is Pentecost. And so we're working on a 50-day window for Paul to get from uh, Greece, from Macedonia to Jerusalem. Okay? So he's not going to spend very long in any of these places. He is in a hurry because travel is slow. So he spent a, a year going around Macedonia, spent three months in, um, in Corinth. Now he's got less than three months to get back to Jerusalem by boat, by land, and meet up with a few people along the way. So that shows his, his urgency. He's not going to stay any place for very long. And so there's a lot of movement that's going to go on. But anyway, um, it says that it took them five days to get to Troas, and they stayed seven days at Troas. And verse number seven, and upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Okay, so if you all think I'm long-winded, I have nothing on Apostle Paul. Okay? <laughs> But think about this for just a minute. It says that they came together on the first day of the week. There is still debate and argument today. People, this is like a, a, a debate or an argument that resurges from time to time. If you get on the internet very much, if you look at uh, message boards and forums and things like that, uh, they are, there's a lot of people that attack Christians for coming together on Sunday. I seen one here recently. It says that you are celebrating a pagan day because Sunday is the day of the sun. No, it's different in my language. <laughs> it is, yes. It's, yeah. And so this is an argument. And so it says Christians are gathering on the wrong day because they are celebrating the sun. They are worshiping the sun because it's that's rubbish. Okay, because Christians have been getting together on the first day of the week long before it was ever known as Sunday. That's where context comes in, right? Most days are. Um, named after pagan gods. Yeah. So, that just comes from a Roman calendar and that kind of thing. Not in my language. 
Modern Hero language. And I don't know about other languages. You know like 10 of them. I don't know what the days are in different ones. Also the months. The months, the months as well, yeah. And so all these things are pagan. And we as Christians, we are forced to use them, but it doesn't mean that we're worshiping these things. But this argument comes up, resurges every now and then, about uh, the Sabbath is Saturday and that we are following pagan traditions by gathering together on Sunday. The Sabbath is Saturday, okay? But we don't keep the Sabbath. We are not Jews and we are not under the law. We keep the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is Sunday because very early on the first day of the week, Mary and Martha, the, or not Mary, Mary and the other women came to the sepulcher and found Jesus risen. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. We find from a very early time in Scripture, multiple places, that the Christians gathered on the first day of the week. Saturday was the Jews' day. Sunday was the Christians' day. The Jews would meet at the synagogue or at the temple on Saturday, and oftentimes the Christians would meet at the same, very same places on what we call Sunday, on the first day of the week. Okay, So this is what was going on at this time. And so this is more evidence to the fact that as we're coming together on the first day of the week, as we're coming together Sunday, we are following in the tradition and on the pattern that was set out from the very beginning that believers came together on the day of the week that the Lord rose from the grave to celebrate his victory over death, hell, and the grave, to celebrate his offer of salvation, to study his word, to fellowship with one another, to glorify him and to praise him. That's what they did. They gathered on the first day of the week. And so this is what Paul is doing here. He gathers together with the believers of Troas on the first day of the week. And it says that they came together to break bread. I believe that is the celebration of the communion. As long as, He says, as often as you uh, eat this bread, drink this cup, uh, do it in remembrance until I come, right? And this is what they're doing. They're coming together. I believe there's fellowship associated with it, with one another, and also a remembrance of uh, what Christ had done for them. They're doing that on the first day of the week. So um, verse 7 again. On the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. So there's fellowship. There is Preaching, right? He preached unto them. And uh, ready to depart on the mark and continued his speech until midnight. Now, from our perspective, they come together on the first day of the week. They had the fellowship. They broke the bread. They had preaching. And it continued to midnight. Now, if we continue to midnight from when we started, it'd be a bad thing, wouldn't it? I don't have it in me, believe it or not. I couldn't do that. But what we have to realize is that at this time, the first day of the week was a work day. The first day of the week was a work day for them. They didn't have Sunday off. And so what these believers were doing is they were getting up early in the morning, probably six o'clock in the morning. They were going out. They were working the jobs, hard, laborious jobs. Many of them were slaves. And they were working all day. They were finishing up, probably finishing up at... Uh, six o'clock in the evening. They'd had a full day's labor, and after they got done with that, then they came to church. And so as we continue in the story, if you're familiar with it, uh, it says that he's preaching long. The room is full. There's lots of people that are doing this. There are many lights in the upper room. So there's heat. It's not electric lights. It's candle lights. 
So there's heat from the lights, there's heat from the body temperature of all the people packed in there. And Paul is long-winded, and Eutychus is in the window trying to get a little bit of fresh air, trying to catch a little bit of the breeze that's blowing through because he's worked all day. He's sitting in the heat. Paul is long-winded. He's preaching a long message. And it's not that he doesn't want to pay attention. It's not that he doesn't want to listen. It's not that Paul is boring. It's that this man is tired. And so he's fighting the sleep. And if you've ever been here, you probably have. He's fighting the sleep. He's trying to stay awake. He's trying to listen, but finally sleep wins out. He falls asleep, and he falls out of the window on the third floor and hits the ground and is dead. Right? Everybody familiar with the story? This is what happens to him. And now I've heard it said that there's nothing wrong with long preaching as long as you're, you have the ability to raise the dead when you put him to sleep, okay? Do I don't have that. How do they know he was long I mean, how do they know when to start the speech? You know what I mean? It, it does, st- it does uh, state. Um, uh, verse number nine, halfway through, and as Paul was long preaching. <laughs> verse number nine, halfway through. It says, There sat in the window a certain young man named Eutychus being fallen into a deep sleep. Wasn't just dozing, he fell into a deep sleep, and as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. Okay? And so I want to bring out just a few things of application through this before we close. But these people in Troas had put a priority on God's word and on gathering together. They said, Yes, we have labored all day, we have worked all day, but if the church is getting together, if uh, the Bible is being preached. If Paul is going to be there, we are going to be there. They met together in uncomfortable conditions. They met together whenever they were tired, whenever it was hot, whenever it was late, all of these things, because they said, we want to hear from God's man and from God's word. We want to fellowship with the saints. And so they came together and they did this. This was a priority for them. And there's a lot that we can learn from that, because in our lives, it's easy for us to put off the things of God because it's uncomfortable or because we're busy or because it's late or because we're tired or because of whatever reason. It's easy for us to make excuses. It's easy for us to put it, put it aside, right? These people said, if God's man and God's word is being presented, I want to be there even if I have been at work, even if uh, the place is crowded, even if it's hot, right? He says, I want to be there. And so they all came out, they came together And they weren't bothered by the fact that Paul was long-winded. And this is something that I enjoy here because in the States, there's a, I guess, a culture within church that so much of the service is so regulated by the clock, okay? If the preacher doesn't wrap up by 12 o'clock noon so that we can get out and we can go to the buffet or get to the restaurant on time, then people are zipping their Bibles, people are getting their coats on, and you're still in the middle of the message. Thankfully, we don't have that here, and part that's part of the reason we have food after church. You don't have to be in a hurry. We'll feed you. But anyway, um, these people, they said, we want to hear from Paul. We want to hear from God's Word. We want to hear from these things, and so we're going to stay even until it's late. And then whenever this man, Eutychus, falls asleep, falls out of the loft, what's Paul's response? That's what you get for sleeping in church. <laughs> no. He's not upset at Eutychus. He doesn't blame Eutychus. He's extremely understanding in this. 
But anyway, it says, Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, trouble not yourselves for his life is in him. Now, Luke is the one that's writing Acts. Luke is a medical doctor. Luke was with him. Luke said this man was dead. Okay, we understand that? This man was dead. Paul goes down, embraces him, and he says, trouble not yourselves, his life is still within him. Okay, what Paul is doing is that these people would have already been lamenting and weeping and wailing at midnight, drawing all sorts of attention to the meeting and to the events that was going on, and they were getting worked up. And Paul is calming them down. Paul is comforting them. He is speaking quietly, speaking confidently to them. He's not upset that they ruined his sermon, that they interrupted the service. He, he is still caring for the needs of the people and being tender toward the people, right? You don't think God did that for a reason, that the guy fell out and called to do a miracle? Well, that's something that's debatable. It, it could either be that um, God did it for his glory. He allowed it to happen for his glory. Or it could be just that the Lord can work all things together for good. I don't think, I, I hesitate to say that God caused him to fall asleep and fall out the window. You know, like God just bringing the breeze through there, just lulling him to sleep. And about the time he goes to sleep, God just like nudges him. No, I don't think that was the case. But I mean, it could have been, but I don't think it was. How much preaching did he get from that? That's what I'm what is it? How much preaching did he get from that when he was born in his deep? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, sometimes asking, the like, body takes over and you're just so mm-hmm. tired even if you want to listen to your body. I know Les gives me a hard time a lot of times because uh, long ago I, I worked crazy hours and I got very little sleep and whatnot and I've never been the type to sit down very much. Okay? And anyway, there's a lot of times like uh, Sunday evening church or whenever I would be um, in the room and it would get hot and what I fall asleep. And so I fell asleep in church plenty of times just because of hours and conditions and all those things. And it, it happens. Okay. And um, as far as how much did he get out of it? Well, not a lot while he was sleeping. But God does bless for our efforts sometimes, you know? <laughs> but just just to draw a parallel for us, okay? What about the, the mother with a young child? Okay? The mother with a young child says, what good does it do me to come to church because I can't even pay attention? I'm seeing to the kid, I'm back in the back, right? I've got to take the kid out so it's not a distraction. And so why should I even come to church if I can't even pay attention to begin with? We've all heard that, right? Probably thought that. But does God bless because that they're there? Do they still get a fellowship with the body? Are they setting patterns and setting uh, habits in their lives and being an example to their children, right? Mm-hmm. And so all these things play in, are in place. And so you look at Eutychus and say, Eutychus, you should have just went home and went to bed. He says, I'm tired. I'm going to go to the Lord's house. He probably kicked himself. He probably judged himself and says, I can't believe I did that. I wonder if their church was like, you know, like us today. I wonder how much of a hard time the people at church gave Eutychus. Can you imagine the jokes that would have continued onward for, you know, months or years? Don't let Eutychus near the window. He'll fall out again. Paul's not here to raise you from the dead this time, Eutychus. Right? Can you imagine? 
And so anyway, Paul goes down, he calms everything, he takes the man and um, resurrects him, brings his life back to him. And then he brings him up and basically, you know, after someone falls out the window, dies and gets resurrected, the church service is over. You don't recover from that. Paul's not going to go back up to the pulpit and say, where was I? Where did I leave off at? Oh, we were in verse, no, he says, forget that. But also to comfort and calm the people a little bit more, he sets down with them and they have food. It's after midnight, lots have happened, and they come together for a meal in the middle of the night, midnight snack, right? They come together, they're eating, they're fellowship, they're talking, and it says that Paul continues until the break of the day. And then he departs. (laughs) Now remember, this was in between work day and work day. This would be like Monday night and Tuesday with our schedules, okay? And so Paul continues all night long, and he's still teaching, he's still discipling, he's still expounding on the truth of God's word, he's encouraging and uh, Eutychus has had a good nap. He's doing better now, right? But part of this is also just the fact that this is the last time Paul's coming through here. This is his final trip through this region. This is his final opportunity to pour in. This is the final time for the people to come and set and to fellowship and to listen with him. And they said, we are going to, even if it takes all night, even, we're going to take as much of this as we can. And they enjoyed it and they fellowshiped and they learned and they And this would have been a huge memory for the people. I think it's also a great thing with Paul healing this man. He didn't leave on a bad note. Could you imagine if the last time Paul was in the city, Eutychus died and that was the end of it? I mean, that'd be a bad memory, wouldn't it? But Paul didn't allow it to leave on a bad note. God didn't allow it to leave on a bad note. And so his final work, his final thing in there, he raised a man from the dead, right, in front of all of these people, and then he sat and he cared for them, loved on them, preached to them, taught them, discipled them. Even though he was older, he had been beaten, he had health issues, and he probably would have liked to sleep himself. He was too busy ministering to these people, and the next day, he got up, didn't even sleep that night, got up, and he went and got on a boat, and took off, okay? And they watched him sail away, and probably looking at Paul and looking at Eutychus, right? And watched him sail away, and that was his final stop. That was the final time that he was there, and he left him there. And so, in closing, just, I know we've been in a lot of different places, a lot of different things today. Paul's life and his ministry is not as clear-cut and not as, simple as it's often portrayed as we look through scripture, reading through the book of Acts by itself. When we take it to account his other writings, the things that was going on, the things that he was juggling, the things that he was dealing with, it gives us a fuller picture. It gives us a more clear picture of how he was uh, ministering to the Corinthians while he was at Ephesus, uh, as he was continuing everywhere, keeping in contact with all these people. And what Paul desired to do was to see people saved and to see the saved grow. That's what he wanted to see happen. And that's what he spent his life doing. And he wasn't detached from everyone else just because he was in Ephesus. doesn't mean that Corinth was out of his mind. He was looking forward to the next thing. He was looking forward to how to grow these people. He was ministering to them. He was answering their questions. He was confronting their issues. And he was looking forward to what God would do next. Okay, And then even as he's leaving these people, 
He's encouraging them, and he is trying to get them rooted and grounded and founded as he's going onward. And so next week, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up as Paul goes from Troas. He's going to stop just short of Ephesus. He's going to send for the Ephesian uh, leaders, the elders of the Ephesian churches, and he is going to spend a little bit of time ministering to them, and then he's going to sail on. He's going to get to Jerusalem. So with that being said, does anyone have any questions or comments on what we've looked at this morning? Well, anytime the Lord healed someone, even healing through Apostle Paul, uh, I believe he heals completely. And so uh, I don't think he had so much as a headache when it was over with. I don't even know if he's tired anymore. Wouldn't that be great? Beauty goes, wakes up from the dead. And, you know, you ever say, I slept like I was dead? Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Woke up refreshed. He's ready to hit the day, right? Next morning comes along. Eutychus is the most well-rested of the bunch. <laughs> okay. Um, you, you have touched on there. There was a question, I guess, that you asked. Mm-hmm. The question was, uh, what, why that believers at the time they were living in poverty? Mm-hmm. And uh, you answer it again, but I, I have a question on the answer that you put in just to try to get clarification. You say that Paul might be one of the reasons that they were in poverty because he was a prosecutor at the time before he became Paul that we know. Mm-hmm. So my question is that did the believer they were living in poverty in, in time of Paul or it, it happened that the, they were in poverty before even the prosecution of Paul or whatever other prosecution well, were taking place. There, there's always going to be poverty, but it was widespread in Jerusalem because of the persecution, because of the things that had taken place. We read about, I think it's in Acts 7, where they appoint the the deacons and things to take care of the widows and the orphans. Mm -hmm. And the reason why there's a lot of widows and fatherless and things is because of the persecution. And it's not just that Paul might be part of the problem. Paul was part of the problem. And so that haunted him because he... Saul, Saul, yeah, it was whenever he was still Saul. But he made many, many women widows and many children fatherless Mm -hmm. because of the persecutions that he was levying against the church. And because of that, a widow or a fatherless person, the the father is the breadwinner. If the father wasn't there, it automatically is going to put them in poverty. And so that is one of the reasons he had such a burden for them is that he considered himself responsible for it. Mm -hmm. That a lot of those people wouldn't be in that condition if he wouldn't have started that. And so he felt a an obligation, not just to his people, but an obligation in a way to kind of make restitution. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Okay, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll take a short break, and we'll get back into uh, the Word of God in the second service. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, and we do thank you for the day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to be here, and we just pray that you would uh, just bless this time that we've had in your word. I know we've been maybe a little bit more academic in it this morning than normal with uh, tracing the history of several of these letters and books and what was going on in Paul's life, but Lord, I pray that uh, something said or uh, some thought that you've given has been a help to the people here, 
And Lord, I just pray you be with our fellowship with one another, be with those who are still on their way out. And Lord, I just pray for your blessings on the next service. We thank you so much for all that you do. In Jesus' name I pray. And amen.